Hello Pod, I'm Chris Hewitt and welcome to the latest in our series of spoiler special Empire podcasts. This one will focus on Gareth Edwards' creature feature, Godzilla. And joining me today to discuss the building smashing mayhem are Ali Plum. Hello. Dan Jolin, our resident Godzilla expert, the man who was on set of the movie and wrote Empire's cover feature. Hello. I did. Hello. Glad to be here. Thank you. Excellent. Glad to have you here. And Helen O'Hara, of course. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Excellent. Welcome, one and all. Uh, Over the next hour or so, we'll be discussing the film in intricate detail. So, as usual, if you haven't seen Godzilla, stomp onto your nearest cinema and check it out. Then come back here and listen to the rest of it. And if you have no interest in seeing Godzilla or listening to anything about its secrets, then what the hell are you doing here? There'll be a regular Empire podcast along in just a second. But before we get into the discussion, let's hear from the man behind the monster, Gareth Edwards, first onto the scene with the cracking lo-fi sci-fi monsters a couple of years ago and was immediately handed the task of rebooting Godzilla by Warner Brothers. He's deeply passionate and knowledgeable about this character, which came across when we sent Helen and Ali to talk to him about well, just about everything. Enjoy. I think we were, we were talking about this in the office before before we came over. That the, the thing that most people wanted to know about was the decision to kill Cranston. Was that always? He was always going down. I don't want to sound like like annoying or facetious or anything, but the way it works is the decision was to kill uh, Brody. Uh, Joe Brody, the character in the movie. <laughs> like, and then it's like, who's going to play him? <laughs> and you look around, and you know what? Hey, this is you know, Brian's a phenomenal, phenomenal. Phenomenal actor, and uh, it's that word in ambulance and and cactus. I can't say. And uh, but Ryan's a very good actor, and you go, we'd be blessed if he did it. And I'll be honest with you, we tried versions where he survived, like in terms of the screenplay. And the thing is, every in everyone that that did that, there's nothing left for that character to do, and without it being silly, and it turns into if he sticks with Ford, it becomes Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. And the tone of the movie becomes fun, but not the tone we were trying to do. And if he sticks with the military guys, he's like a he's like a fifth wheel, and he's you know, and it just seems, it just was like his job was done in the storyline there. And retrospectively, you know, when you when you get to see the movie, I understand, and I and I I wish we maybe had figured a way to make it work, but we tried everything, and we had all ideas welcome. You know, I mean, even with Brian, it was like. But but there was, it was just he be, as a story beat he becomes redundant once he's handing over the baton to the rest of the cast. I actually agree with you, and also it it, it creates those kind of that kind of tension and the stakes early on, which I think you you kind also, of have to have. Also wanted people to think, oh, they're willing to do that. Oh, okay, maybe maybe this ain't going to end how I think, mm. you know. And so it throws people a bit, and I like I like that in movies where you stop thinking that they're going to do everything you can predict. Hmm. Talking about script fluctuations, not that that was necessarily a fluctuation, that was just a consideration. What other things did you consider bending? Because there seemed to be key set pieces. Were those always there? Like, or did some arrive midway through the process? Well, what happens is you, you know, you, everything's happening in parallel. So we was, you know, you're working on the screenplay whilst you're building sets, whilst you're, casting the movie whilst you're doing previs and animation and all sorts of things and so the thing that was like set in stone for me like the aspects that were never going to change really were like the major set pieces and so that's what got all my attention in a lot of the pre-production knowing that the rest we could you know we could get right as we went along and so they were kind of like the the milestones of the movie that we knew we were going to reach at some point 
And it was just how the connective tissue between them was going to work mm. sometimes. And that's what got refined and changed as we sort of evolved the film, as we sort of made it. Because it is true, you do, you do write the movie and then you film it and rewrite it and then you edit it and rewrite it again. And there was a lot of... If you could just teleport the movie back in time to before you started, it'd be so much easier. Because you go, oh, that's it, of course. Right, okay, I know how to do it. And In terms of the Mothra reference, which we see on the side of, I don't know the term for it. It's not... It's actually terrarium. That's but the it's word. A, yeah. You, you nailed terrarium, that was... I, could, I don't struggle with that one. Yeah, that was okay. It's, uh, no. it's, it's a phenomenally hard word to, to say. <laughs> well, that, well, that seems to me to be the one clear Easter egg in the whole film. Were there others that we didn't spot? Oh, yeah. There was, okay, I mean, so there was that. When he's a kid and he goes up and he goes out of his bedroom, the camera goes up to a poster. On the poster, the t- in Japanese, because obviously we all know Japanese, the, the title of that film is called Let Them Fight. And um, if you look on the images, it's Muto's and a nuclear uh, reactor and the Golden Gate Bridge. Um, so kind of the movie's represented on that poster. And um, if you, in the classroom, although this is probably more obvious, but when there's the power cut, they're watching a thing about how a cocoon hatches on the TV that cuts off. And on the walls is like the life cycle of, of butterflies and things. And uh, at the end of the movie, when he gets on the boat, in San Francisco and the, the boat is called Go Whales Tours and the Japanese word for Godzilla is Go Jira so it's kind of like um, and Jira means whale so it's it's like the Japanese it's like saying Godzilla Tours on the on the boat silly things like that that's awesome because when I did the um, trailer breakdown with you I was like so you put in a little peace crane dangling from the window in the classroom and I thought I was so clever and I don't spot any of those other ones I actually it was one of those things where they they were there like origami just out of a nice detail that the, the art department put in and then once I saw them I was like oh you know what we should have done we should have they should have been Muto up there like subconsciously it would have been good and I kept asking the visual effects people like could you change one of them to a Muto but <laughs> and there was this polite like uh, we'll see if we get time <laughs> but we have more important things to do like the, the all the visual effects for the movie <laughs> yeah Godzilla that's yeah. one we have to do you, you ended up with what a thousand or so effect shots Did you, do, you have, do you know the exact number in the end uh, it's, I don't know something like 990 I don't know it's a healthy number yeah yeah but actually you know what a lot of the, these films the thing I'm most proud of is a lot of these films this kind of film has closer to 2000 and we actually have a lot like nearly half what these movies normally have and and i was kind of like when they said that when they did the the shot count i was saying to the visual effects producer and stuff like see see what you're worried about it's going to be okay and they were like yeah but gareth your shots are over twice as long as the average shot uh, which makes it even harder and it was like oh okay what about the decision to, to do San Francisco? Because that is a city that has co- suffered from monsters attacks on film quite a lot. Is that, was that sort of part of the appeal of it, that it's kind of part of a tradition of suffering? I think with the exception of like, you know, I think a lot of cities have had their fair share of something in movies, um, apart from like Nuneaton, you know, <laughs> but that I don't think that... Stale come. I mean, that's my hometown, but I don't think that would have really gone down well with the studio. But... The I, basically it was because 
if you imagine, okay, let's for argument's sake, it's Los Angeles. Oh, it's had to be somewhere on the American Pacific coastline. So let's pick uh, Los Angeles. Like, you step out, you Godzilla, you step out of the ocean, it's already flat. You know what I mean? There's nothing to do. It's like his job is done already for him. It's a very boring movie. And so we're looking for a, you know, you're looking for a city that's got landmarks, that um, has a very good relation ge- geographically with the ocean a, a relationship. So you have the bridges, you have the bay. It just became like, it just wrote itself really. There was, you know, you could have gone to Seattle, you could have done San Diego. But to be honest, you show that skyline, and this is the problem you get stuck in, you show that skyline to people and they don't know where that is. Mm-hmm. But it is like, I know it sounds silly, and you do think about this, and I actually did, you feel like, okay, why do we do this? Why do we always have, like, major cities at the end of these sort of movies? Why? And just to sound serious for a minute, it is like, if you've ever gone round England and gone for little walks in the countryside, and there's these castles, you know, on the hilltops, and I used to always think, this is silly, when you invade a country, right, what would happen is everyone would retreat to the castle, and get ready to fire arrows. And you feel like you could just, in, back then, you could have just invaded England and gone, and everyone would have ran back to their castle. You'd be like, you could have your castle, all right? We'll take, we'll take <laughs> the 99% rest of the land, and you will stay in your castle. Like, it's kind of a really silly thing. But then what's even sillier is that the invading forces were like, we're only interested in the castle. Like, mm-hmm. if you take the castle, you've taken the country. And I think cities are our modern castles. There's this feeling, like, from humanity's point of view, that until you take the highest landmark you haven't actually won. And, and I think that's why a lot of films climax at, at, like in, in the centre of a major metropolis. Can we just talk briefly about Atomic Breath? Because yeah. one of my favourite like, money shots, as they're called, was, was Godzilla pulling the, the jaws apart yeah. and, and essentially firing down his neck. Yeah. Um, that was a, an outstanding shot. What were, your, what were your requirements from Atomic Breath? Were, were you very keen for it to be that specific neon colour? Uh... I mean, it was always going to be blue. Mm. At one point, we dabbled with lightning, like wow. a little bit more to do with nature, you know, in terms of godlike destruction. But it's it was considered not enough like Godzilla, classic Godzilla. And that moment, actually, like we, we were like, how are we going to kill the Muto? How are we going to do this? And we knew Godzilla was going to come back and do, do it. But, and it was a last minute kind of decision. It was like, well, what if he just pulls apart? Because there was this moment where we we're going to just break the jaw and do this. And it felt like um, that's too much like King Kong. Um, and so then it was like, well, what if he just like, just vomits blue breath, right? Like nearly a kiss, you know what I mean? Like the Muto is going to grab him. And and, it, and I honestly kind of thought, oh, we're not going to get away with this. This is, this is absurd. And then we sat and we did a little test screening and it was everybody's favorite moment. I didn't think it was absurd <laughs> at all. I thought it was like pure violence. It was the most... It was the most brutal thing you could possibly yeah. do. I thought there was there was cheering in the in the cinema when I oh, saw great. it. So yeah. Um, what about the decision, which also got a cheer, uh, to ravage Las Vegas? Well, we were already in Nevada because of the the near nuclear um, Yucca Mountain, where they store their nuclear, um, which is a real place. All the nuclear waste in America. Um, obviously, not being American, I didn't know about this, but it's like a contentious issue in the states. Is this Yucca Mountain thing in Nevada that's just full of nuclear waste, and. So the nearest city, you know, because we're talking castles again, was was uh, Las Vegas, really. And so um, it, I couldn't resist it because the way they do all the casinos with the, you know, the Paris and uh, New York, New York, it's like a one-stop shop for monsters. Like you can <laughs> smash every major landmark in the world in like one go. 
And so it was too good to be true. And that sequence actually a lot longer initially. And the plan, we planned quite a few shots. And then when you watch the movie, as fun as everything is individually, when you watch it, you kind of need to keep getting on with the story. And so some stuff got cut out, which is why in the trailer there's that shot of the Statue of Liberty. There was a sequence that sort of ended with that shot. And as we were cutting the film, you know, it was just decided that, that we should end it sooner. One of my favourite conceits within the film is the grand conceit that it's soaking up radiation. Was that from the naissance or did that occur halfway through as well? Because the idea of feeding off it and also the, the, the courting lovers giving each other a gift of, of the missile, that, for example, in particular, was that something that came in late after the radiation idea? The feeding on it was always part of it because it feels like, you know, you get very symbolic when you do a monster movie and very metaphorical and you're always looking for that stuff because the reality is like a giant monster movie is just absurd and it's, it's not going to happen and we don't have to worry about things like that. It has no point on society. But so you're trying to find what's the hidden meaning and what they represent. And and so the nuclear theme is, you know, comes given with Godzilla. And what's great I liked about uh, where it ended up landing was that you know, we police the world in the West and we say, you can't have nuclear power and you can't have nuclear weapons, but we can. And the idea, if there were these creatures that were attracted to radiation, like we'd, the tables would be turned and we'd be desperately trying to get rid of this stuff. And and that sequence actually where they give each other, a, or it's a, a dowry or whatever it is, a gift, uh, is is um, was did come in post-production. That It was storyboarded, not specifically that, but a moment where they met was storyboarded and then we decided it was too expensive and maybe we should just avoid it and then in, when we watched it we missed it so we, it was all done in the computer but the faces light up in that beam yeah there's a little bit of either Battlestar Galactica going on with the Cylons or maybe uh, Knight Rider <laughs> I wanted to ask about uh, two people who I know kind of you, you mentioned to Ardan were, were involved in the film Andy Serkis and Frank Darabont can you tell us what they brought to it yeah um, so Andy Serkis uh you know, we called him very late in the day. It was we were towards the end of post production, and we were doing all the animation. Um, MPC did all, you know, pretty much all the Godzilla shots in the movie, and um, and there's a lot of limited time to get everything right. And and hand animation, which is exactly what we did, is a slow process um, to kind of do back and forth reiterations. It's like takes at least a day if not longer to sort of animate something well and so using a real actor and having a conversation with that actor and them doing the performance and saying just copy that that's what we'd like to do mm-hmm. was like a fast way to reach a solution and so Andy came in just for a couple of weeks and and performed some you know um, just a handful of the key soulful Godzilla moments like when he fell and looks at Ford and things like that so that we could use the same eye movement and you know the little eye darts and stuff to try and give it some soul and uh, Frank Darabont, he came in and he did a pass of the screenplay uh, about two months, three months before we started filming. And, um, you know, there's a lot of his works remained in the film. But the thing that really stayed that is what he brought to the table that is, you know, one of the highlights of the film is when the doors close on Juliette Binoche, that whole idea of of there being like a, a gateway or a checkpoint that they have to get through and that it would close and then you would see her die and you'd have that very emotional moment. And uh, that's that was like his, um, the biggest contribution. And, 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 and it's one of the most, it's the emotional, you know, peak of the film potentially. And so 
Uh, I mean, that's why he's Frank Darabont, I think. Yeah, my, my, I bet that it was the, um, the bridge sequence and I got it wrong. <laughs> I got it wrong. Anyway, thank you so <laughs> thank much. That's been really illuminating. Thanks um, a lot. There's a lot to think about, so thanks. Yeah. Oh, cheers, thanks cheers, for having me. So that was Gareth Edwards, and now let's dig into the meat of the movie itself. Now, as we started, as you guys started off talking to uh, Gareth about Brian Cranston and what happens to him in the movie, that's start there. It seems like a, a good place to start. I think Brian Cranston's a very relatable actor, and for me, it felt like he was going to be the heart of the film. And then suddenly, uh-oh, exit stage left, pursued by a giant lizard thing. And I don't know, for, for me, it was a bit of a loss. I think it is a loss because any time that Brian Cranston leaves the screen, it's a loss. Um, but I actually, I, I'm kind of, I kind of agree with what Gareth said. He'd he'd sort of done what he was there to do, and he would have been a bit of a spare wheel from that point on. He didn't have expertise that anyone else didn't have, you know, in the sense that he had nothing particularly to contribute to Ken Watanabe or any of the rest. Um, and I think. You know, I think the the problem is not that we're so much that we're missing that character is that we don't like the character we're left with so much. I don't agree. I think there was plenty more that he could have done. I kind of, uh, I actually uh, uh, said this to, 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 to Gareth yesterday. I was a bit annoyed at him for uh, killing Cranston off so early. Um, but, you know, just, just, you know, just from the perspective of the storyline, I think it would have been more interesting for him to continue the journey and actually encounter Godzilla. Because if you think he, he actually never sees Godzilla in yeah. the film he only sees the Muto just before he's uh, but he's got no with. connection with Godzilla Godzilla no, didn't kill his wife but there's I mean. yeah but the Muto did and and then Godzilla was the agent of retribution yeah so Godzilla in rather than I mean obviously there's there's we'll get on to Watanabe Ken Watanabe's character in a little bit but I think it would be more interesting to have Godzilla be the agent of retribution for Cranston I think that could have worked maybe Cranston's death awoke Godzilla as his surrogate. Wow, okay. I could go with that. Yeah, I could go I, with that. I can fully go with that. I can see that Heisenberg's spirit animal is Godzilla. <laughs> well, <laughs> yes. Well, it's interesting because there, there was, there's there been a whole lot of people were very excited about the idea of Brian Cranston in this. I mean, for me, the, the giveaway that he wasn't going to stick around for much of the movie was the fact that he wasn't in any of the, the later scenes and trailers and the and Brian Cranston credit, which usually isn't a good sign. But, you know, there were so many great Heisenberg-Godzilla mashups posters and little memes and stuff going on I think people will be disappointed to see him uh, depart after what the first 25 minutes towards 25 30 minutes something like that and I think this further reinforces the fact that um, Brian Cranston characters should not have birthdays bad things happen to Brian Cranston characters on their birthdays in in this movie he gets his, his wife gets killed and his life gets torn apart and turned upside down and, and Breaking Bad gets a diagnosis of cancer in the very first episode on his birthday and other eventful things happen on birthdays as well in that show so it's also uh, Malcolm in the Middle he genuinely does get into a lot of scrapes around his birthday you think that would give him a day off nope doesn't <laughs> the one thing I will say is that when Brian Cranston's on screen and this I think leads on to what Helen was alluding to I found Aaron Taylor Johnson more palatable I was quite pleased with that when they're in his study and there's a little bit of levity in there genuinely acting his wig off Brian Cranston when he's <laughs> in that booth you know that glass booth was where, it a wig was it in between was it it is yeah it, it is, is it is definitely a wig okay. yes I think his neutrinos had mutated <laughs> and they'd started crawling about his scalp it, yeah you could see it act along with him like a, some kind of daemon he was so good and you connected with him so much like the first few scenes when Julia Binoche and Brian Cranston in the car together mm. it's just a couple of beats it's very unpatronising it wasn't he didn't spell it out for you but it was just cute and real yeah. and you I immediately really... see these guys have got a good a good marriage mm. they've got a kid they're a nice they're nice people it works mm. I, that really worked for me and when, when it left it was sad and I think there was a potential to keep that dynamic 
I personally don't rate Aaron Taylor-Johnson. Having Brian Cranston and him together, they worked to an extent, and if they had stayed together for longer, I'm not saying it would have made it infinitely better. I think I would have quite liked to have seen that. Yeah, I think I think that's a good point, actually. They, they were a good double act, and I, I remember, obviously, I wrote my feature and my coverage before I knew what was happening, and I, I think I played up this idea that they, they were this father-son with their differences and their problems going on this journey and you know obviously I shouldn't because I didn't know that it wouldn't be much of a journey in the end but I loved the idea yeah me too Mm. I thought it was very clever how Ken's character Ken someone asks him who do you want to come with you you know you need who, who else would you need to help you with your quest now it made so much logical sense of course he wants the guy who could okay yeah the guy who's working yeah. out the readings that guy and I was yeah. like, oh brilliant you found a really clever way of incorporating everyone so the son comes with him because he's still unwell and everything was really neat and then you go oh and then the ball drops out of the hand and i would have loved this movie i think a lot more had we been filming cranston i agree with dan i think his emotional journey would have sustained the film in a way that uh uh, Ford Maddox Fords doesn't. Mm. Would revenge be okay if it's through this medium of a ginormous lizard monster? Yeah. Cranston riding Godzilla. Who doesn't want to see that? <laughs> Transformers 5. But also, I'm, I'm going to defend Aaron Taylor Johnson. Not necessarily in this film. I think he's not given a lot to work with. Uh, he's, he's a bit of a blank in this film. A bit of a cipher. I think he's great in Nowhere Boy. I think he's fantastic in Kick-Ass. I'm not, I'm not Two can't vastly be good, different characters. But he can be not good, I, th- I think it's fair to say. Uh, well, yeah, but uh, I, I, I would be more uh, confident of Avengers 2, his team-up with uh, Elizabeth Olsen and that, than in this, where you don't really get a sense of them as a couple mm. in the very, very brief screen time that they have together. I thought the scenes with Olsen and Johnson, even though they were very brief, actually were really good. I thought they were... You know, I thought this, it was a superb little vignette of their relationship and uh, I found them quite likeable and I found them quite believable but obviously it's it's one scene that's about what mm. two three minutes long and that's that's a problem I think the the problem is that yeah you just don't get enough to kind of hang on to why would we particularly follow Taylor Johnson I think maybe maybe he needed an extra beat with his father early on where he talks about the effect that all this had on his life because I think we get a sense that there's been an effect but we don't really know what it is so it might have helped if, if there'd been a bit more of that which would have given him a bit more impetus to to go through this experience and, and change as a result of it mm. I agree I mean I, I, th- I think the biggest problem with uh, with his character uh, Ford is that he is a character of, of utter, utter convenience he just happens to be everywhere the plot requires him to be and, not, and nothing you don't really get a sense that he's changing or reacting much to the material to to what happens. I mean, his father dies in front of his very eyes, and the very very next scene, he's kind of okay with it. And the minute he's in Hawaii, and he's about to go home, and blah blah blah. Um, and and the, the biggest quirk that character has seems to me, anyway, from that early scene with Elizabeth Olsen, is an inability to remember where his socks are kept. And that's you need more. I need more from my characters uh, in in order for me to root for them, uh, other than just saying this is a hero you will root for. Him. This movie's been compared to Jaws an awful lot, uh, and I think. Has it? It has. I've seen a lot of the the delayed release of a of a monster. Yeah. Okay. It feels more Jurassic Park to me. There's a lot of Jurassic Park close encounters, but in terms of Jaws, uh, you know, I do wonder if focus groups or studio executives went, "No, we need a younger hero," and you have to remember that Jaws has three middle-aged heroes and I would uh, again I've happily watched Cranston carry this movie. Well, they took the family name from Jaws anyway. They took the family name Um, from Jaws. Yeah. But I think I mean I think in in the in defence of Taylor Johnson's character, I think what they've tried to do is is give him as much agency as it is possible to have so you know he he happens to turn up everywhere the monster does because he's 
also trying to get back to the other side of the Pacific. So, you know, Hawaii is an obvious stopping point, I guess, especially for the US Pacific fleet, which is based there. That makes, you know, a certain amount of sense. And then he's trying to get on a commercial flight when obviously all commercial flights are cancelled because of the attack on the airport. And so he he gets on a military plane, which throws him back in with the military. And then what you see is this guy's kind of professionalism or his his you know his his military instincts kind of taking over and mm. him trying to help out in whatever way he can with his comrades I guess I thought that was a really nice little scene actually the one where he walks up to the uh, the, the commanding guy and starts saying well I've got this can you do this I've got this knowledge da, 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 da. and the guy goes yeah 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 you know, yeah, he's, he's, he's almost like he's, it's not the moment where he goes, we need this guy. He just turns around and says, no, we, we don't need you. But then obviously he does, actually. I actually really liked how logical this film was. I think I'm just going to call this film very logical as, and you interpret that in your own way. Everything made sense. Everything worked. And they did get this missile here because they wanted to do that. And this went there. And, you know, you hop around about 30 different locations in the first yeah. 30 minutes. It's astonishing mm-hmm. how much this hops around. And it all worked. All the dots worked. Like, this is a movie about a giant B-movie monster that is the size of, you know, 30 stories. But everything logically slotted together, but I think to the detriment of necessarily feeling... For example, at the very end, when you have Aaron Taylor-Johnson on the boat, it's a huge sacrifice. It's What he's doing is extraordinary. But I didn't feel I knew kind of why he was doing it. For the good of the people, for his wife, for his father, I would have liked it to be for his father because I felt like that was that was it look it's all what ifs and what have yous but anyway going back to scenes that I did like the first release the release of the first Muto is it comes out of the electrical wiring and all those electrics the sound was amazing I was in a a Dolby Atmos uh, screening room I was so glad I was the sound was fantastic and the way that the monster was screeching and then the wires are snapping and breaking electricity's going on and off I really like that sequence and when you get that thump of Mm. the hooked flea leg of the Muto thumping into the earth yeah I just I really like that set piece that was mm. that was really good I mean Gareth has proven himself I think uh, brilliant with those kind of details mm. the level of detail that there is in the big set piece moments and and I describe them as mainly action suspense scenes and I, I and this isn't hyperbole I, it genuinely put me back to the heyday of James Cameron and Steven Spielberg moments from Jurassic Park, moments from Aliens and the Terminator. You know, those kind of well-observed and very finely structured scenes that every little beat thing feels really thought out and is there for a reason. Even some of the incidental scenes, there was one where they they run to the to the, you know, the nuclear dump base in Nevada. And it's just a sh- it's just a shot of those 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 guys those military guys running up and they pull the slot across and they look in and there's stuff there pull the slot and they look in and then one of them pulls a slot and this kind of heavenly light beams through and for a second there I was like I genuinely don't know what's just happened but that's a really striking and impressive image I love this yeah. and then he opens the door and then of course you've got the shot of the the, the monsters burst out and you know it's he's looking out it across the landscape and it's just such a great moment and 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 i think that is a film of at least a dozen brilliant visually meticulous moments i would actually agree i think there's the the, the action scenes and the, the set pieces are almost flawless um i think they're they're gorgeously gorgeously put together as well they're not 
they're not kind of overhyped, I think, in the way that sometimes, let's say, a Michael Bay film mm. is. If you think about the hero shot of Optimus Prime or something in a Michael yeah. Bay movie, it's really, like, strongly telegraphed. This is the hero shot. Whereas I feel like we got hero shots in this, but they weren't as they weren't as in your face they were beautifully done and you got the whole impression of the size and the scope and the power of Godzilla but without having that hey everybody look at me mm. kind of neediness about it which I thought was absolutely brilliant um, and I also and I've, I've said this on Twitter so apologies for repeating myself but I also felt like I knew what Godzilla was kind of thinking repeatedly I, I kept sort of mentally putting in my own dialogue like when he's attacking the sort of the Golden Gate Bridge and the US Army starts kind of firing at him rockets yeah. machine guns whatever they have basically they're, they're sort of firing at him to get him to move away from the bridge which is still full of civilians and so on um and you can kind of see the point where he goes oh to hell with this and just walks <laughs> through the bridge and walks on uh, but you know there, there you, you get that sense of okay this is beginning to annoy me now let's all stop um as he as he kind of moves one, one thing i will say about the set piece moments like the uh, red smoke parachuters and all that stuff obviously the big you know the train and all of that stuff i would have liked a little less of the pov stuff sometimes you jump to a person behind someone's goggles or someone in the water and part of me just goes can i just i know you're teasing me but i would like to see the whole massive epicness of it all i'd like to see this muto in co you know compared to the small eiffel tower in, in las vegas speaking of that moment i was a little frustrated when you see the muto's trundling through Nevada and is just about to stomp its way through Las Vegas and then it cuts to a TV report and I just was like oh you I really wanted to see that I really wanted to see that and it's funny that Gareth Edwards mentions that that was a much longer sequence mm. that they decided because of the flow of the film they didn't want to do but I think it works to keep the really big sort of fight scenes for for the end because you it does deliver those fights it's not like it teases and never never gives you what you want it teases and then really really delivers for my money um, so I was kind of okay with that and also the bridge sequence that you mentioned I think is just spectacular could there have been would it have been even better if there were slightly better you know human characters on the bridge yes but uh, but just the way it's shot and the, the sort of the atmosphere of that and the creepiness of that which is a very difficult thing to do when your monster is 200 feet tall I, I like the bus driver yeah. <laughs> I really like the bus driver. It's just like he's, he's never named, is it? But he's this guy. He takes command. Do you know what I mean? He's just like I'm. I'm dealing with putting my foot down. Oh no! I'm going into river. You know, he saves those kids. No one swoops in and saves them. I was really confused about the destination of that bus. It seemed to be going from San Francisco downtown uh, over to. San it was. It was going Marin. to where. It was going to where the apes live. Oh, yeah. so the apes were going to protect the kids. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I actually meant the other bridge sequence, the, the railway bridge rather than the Golden Gate Bridge, hence the creepiness. Oh, right. But, um, right, okay, now I see what you mean. Yeah, I yeah. didn't... Yeah, there wasn't really creepiness in the um, Golden no. Gate Bridge sequence, was there? that's more I, like I, it's about to fall. I thought that was just you being a bit weird. Yeah, thanks. That, that was a great sequence. The, the interesting thing was uh, Warner's uh, had Gareth Edwards in about six weeks ago something like that and they showed us uh, five sequences from the film and I came out like 25 minutes of preview footage doing exactly what they wanted me to do which was I think this could be the film of the summer this is astonishing they showed the uh, Hawaii uh, airport attack they showed the early scene with Cranston losing Binoche and, and bringing it 
on a level of acting that no one else in the film brings quite frankly uh, the Hawaii airport sequence is my favourite sequence in the film and I'm disappointed a bit like you Ali uh, later on that he you know, cuts away just as Godzilla and the Muto are scurrying up the bridge sequence the creepy bridge sequence I just thought this is astonishing there's a level of craft there's a level of, of scale mm. that I don't think a director has nailed since, since Cameron since Spielberg and uh, you know obviously they, they didn't hide the uh, slightly disappointing plan of characters but I, I, I will agree the set pieces are phenomenal in this film the, the Hawaii airport sequence, the introduction of Godzilla, is just masterful. The way it almost plays on the uh, the, the destruction of blockbusters reek. So you have mm. this idea that these airplanes are smashing into each other and you just think this can't get any more ridiculous and over the top. And then suddenly Godzilla's leg appears and then another leg stomps into view. And it's just an amazing, amazing shot. That was shot. incredible. Uh, and then the first, the, first, uh, the first sign of the big fella as he unleashes that roar is 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 wonderful and the Golden Gate Bridge sequence is very very good and there's a lot to like about the uh, the Man of Steel-esque destruction orgy of the uh, of the last 30 minutes or so there's a lot to like about it he also does kill the dog in Hawaii so full marks for that the dog running away from the tsunami seems to get swept up in it now it's not made explicit but there's no obvious saving of the dog um, which is one better than Emmerich managed I really liked that water sequence. One of my favourite bits of the trailer was that pedestrian just running over a car. See, there's a POV shot that worked, uh, where someone's still in the car, and then it breaks the windscreen, and then he runs over the car, and then the mm. water hits. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought that was all very good. And they were all incidental characters. He wasn't afraid of using the... You want to quickly explain to the audience that you have to care about these characters. Right, here are a group of disparate random punters, and there's a cute child. Yeah. yeah. He, that tiny cute child is inquisitive be it walking into a train or walking towards the sea. Associate with that family, family gets into trouble, bish bash bosh, slap hands together, walk off. I like the last fight. I explained on the podcast how much I love, on the interview, how much I love the, you know, the breaking of the jaws and the, the, the tearing off someone's head and shitting down their neck, but, you know, with with atomic breath. But- I actually have a genuine question about the film. There's one point, it's, it's certainly late afternoon, if not early evening in San Francisco. Uh, the monsters are there, pretty much. And some people are still in an office building yeah, on the like twentieth floor or something. Like, yeah. I mean, I'm all for a work ethic. I was playing Gallagher. <laughs> Didn't think I saw it, but I did. <laughs> but um, yeah, I don't know. That's a, that's an interesting one. But uh, you know, it's like one of those great cliches. You always have to have that. I it's guess. like the, it's like we should probably stick around in this office building because at some point something will happen to us and it'll be an amusing for the audience. So let's just let's just stay here. Okay. There's a lot of that in Transformers Three, where this is gi- ginormous you know skyscraper and there's like a giant snake robot you still have Jason from accounts yeah he's still there <laughs> still going diligently filing stuff it's not going to file itself what, what Godzilla really needed and I think it lacked uh, was a bit of humour but it also really needed that tramp with the bottle <laughs> looking at the, uh, the massive creatures or, or a double taking pigeon <laughs> but it, 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 it isn't we haven't even talked about the big failure the, the tone of the film is very interesting to me uh this is, uh, I think, another remnant of what I call the Chris Nolanization of commercial cinema, uh, in that everything was super serious, everything was dour, everything was uh, was desperately trying not to make a joke about things. And I think Godzilla should be fun. And I think if there's one thing, I'm going to get castigated for this, one thing that the Roland Emmerich film did better than this movie was it had a sense of fun about it. But, I, I mean, if you look at the original Godzilla, which I think is much more of a model than the Roland Emmerich one for this, that's actually True, yeah, but you know what I mean. super serious in, mm. in, in many, many ways. I mean, the destu- destruction there is utterly devastating and you see, you know, scads of people lying on stretchers and so on mm. afterwards. It's it's really, really heart-wrenching. And if, if you're, we're going to make Ali happy and deliver, you know, giganto destruction uh, on a massive scale, then there's mm. only so so much levity you can bring. I mean, I, I did laugh during the film. It was generally 
at the inner monologue, I was supplying Godzilla, uh, possibly, because it just, it genuinely, it did feel like trash talk. It felt like he was, he was, you know, dismissing the other mutos on a couple of occasions. And I was quite amused by the way he did it and by his body language and that kind of thing. But I'm not sure how much room there was for much more than that. I, I think I do agree with you, Chris, but I think the way I'm angling this, it's not, it's too serious. It takes itself too seriously, is that I didn't feel it was very personable. It's going back to my point of logic. I'm not expecting every other scene for there to be a, oh, where's my washboard? You know, kind of like, <laughs> I slipped on a banana, Godzilla's on his back again, bloody hell. Maybe that's how they do it. How, massive how banana. did you find the banana that big that Godzilla slipped on <laughs> yeah. it? Yeah. I'm not looking for that, but I'm just looking for a little bit of human connection, man. I'm looking yeah, for, man. and sometimes you do that through humour. Yeah. And sometimes you do that through somebody doing something that is typical of all humans, but you don't see in you know cinema, like forgetting to put the loose seat down or whatever. But I didn't get any of that. <laughs> I didn't get Godzilla putting the loose seat down. Now I didn't get. I didn't get Aaron Taylor Johnson being human. I yeah. felt like he was a plot robot. Yeah, Maybe I, I should take back what I said about you know me not liking Aaron Taylor Johnson that much. He can behave in this way, and he does here. I wanted him to be less of a plot robot. I wanted him to be more of a human being. A human being. It's a BFG yeah. reference, which you wouldn't get. Oh, right. I thought you meant like as in Rowan Rowan Atkinson. Bringing it back to the Spielberg tie-ins of the movie and the Spielbergy touches to the movie. See, I want to talk more about Bean. Yeah, I do. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'd love to see Bean first. This, this move on. Let's just move away. I want to see Godzilla okay. slip up on a bloody banana skin, but hello. The scientist stuff. I think we better talk about that. There was a little <laughs> bit of he is nature's protector. He is the alpha um, Apex predator. predator. Yeah, and he will. You know, he sorts shit out. I've got something to say that I, you know. Obviously, I, I, I really enjoyed the film, but. All this talk of Godzilla being a predator, I would have liked to have seen him predate. He should have eaten the mutos. I wanted to see like him chowing down on some, on, on some nice warm muto flesh. That is a fair point. But he did collapse exhausted after the battle, which I liked. Uh, I liked. Oh, I true. thought that was very good animalistic behaviour. And I also thought it was um, interesting. It offers an, a possible sort of uh, response to those who say, why didn't he use his atomic breath earlier yeah. and throughout? It clearly exhausts Who him. says that, Helen? Was that you, Chris? It may have been me. Okay. Yeah. It's a really, really nice little thing to roll out. In the, in the it's a lovely image when the the tail starts lighting up behind. Is yeah. it Taylor Johnson? Uh, when the tail starts lighting up behind Aaron Taylor Johnson. And, uh, you know, uh, that's, that's pretty cool. And now he's doing that thing. Oh, why didn't you do that earlier on? But you know what? The punters have come to see something. You, you know, if you can punch mm. someone out in the first round, doesn't mean you should. It's a money shot, Chris. And as we know, you can't have too many of those. Otherwise, you fall asleep. Exactly. Oh. And he did. As he did, yeah. He did fall <laughs> I have a question about Ken Watanabe. <laughs> he's uh, he's actually fifty nine in real life. Uh, very well preserved, but fifty nine. And literally nearly did a cut. <laughs> 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 what? Fifty nine. He's fifty nine. Wow. Um, but in the movie he says his father was killed in nineteen forty five. Correct. Mm-hmm. Which makes him very old. Very old. Unless well, the implication is that his father died. He doesn't say specifically his father died. So you could say his father maybe lived from over the 10 years or so. Yeah, I think his father died yeah. in 1945. I think there's a, a very the strong is? implication. Talking about the logical stuff and talking about not being patronised, there are bits in the beginning where I felt totally not patronised and mm. felt organic and real. Yeah. Julia Binoche, whatever. In the final shot of the film, he gets up. Oh, brilliant. He's lumbering. Oh, great. And everyone's totally surprised. I, this is, he's, he's alive. This is incredible. And he's going back into the sea because he cannot be bothered with you fuckers. <laughs> Just leave me. I really felt for him. It's like, yeah. I am exhausted. I've got to go home. And the TV screen pops up and it says, <sighs> it says, Saviour of our city? Yes. Question mark. I do not like it when movies do that. Do what specifically? When they go, right, you know the whole right. point, the whole 
emotional ride that you're going on right now is going, wow, he did ruin most of San Francisco. Yes. And he killed all those front. people in Hawaii. And he killed all those people, yeah. yeah. But he actually... He's, he's, he's kind of a saviour. That's ho- the whole point of the audience going, he's actually the hero. Well, and this is the if you do the numbers, the if you do the numbers, yeah, I, I think he probably saved more people than he killed. I'm not, I'm not he, saying that he isn't the saviour of the city. I just don't want to be told. I'm working that out in a beautiful, organic way and then suddenly the TV screen with a question mark on the end. Maybe they have to do something like that to explain why they didn't try to blow him up while he lay sleeping. Yeah, also... But they also know that um, they can't really. They've tried to blow them up with nuclear bombs in the past and it hasn't worked. Godzilla is impervious to conventional weapons. He is. Mm. My feeling in that is uh, that I don't think people would be that happy. It goes, saviour of our city? And he goes, well, there is no city. There's nothing left. (laughs) No one's going to be living in San Francisco for a very long time, if indeed ever again. (laughs) That was my slight problem with that. (laughs) In all seriousness, if Godzilla is a goodie and he's there to restore balance, there were little teases in this film for Mothra. Um, mm. You know, there's obviously the the moth uh, in the sort of terrarium with the with the with the sign on and everything in the in Aaron Taylor Johnson's erstwhile bedroom, but Mothra traditionally has been the one to restore balance and protect humanity and all the rest. Mothra's been more of a goodie historically in mo- more of the films than Godzilla nearly. So, uh, what I'm wondering is if they make a sequel, are they setting themselves up for trouble? If they're both restoring humanity, having set up the Mutos and Godzilla. Mm. I can't even begin to think how with a sequel they would feasibly bring in Mothra yeah another giant or any of you know King Ghidorah or Gamora or any of the other monsters they could bring in one of the more sort of lizardy looking monsters probably not Ghidorah because you know three heads Mm. difficult to sell but yeah you're right I mean insect wise Mothra would seem problematic after just having the Mutos or Mechagodzilla that is what I wanted to see. I didn't want, <laughs> when he got up, when he got up from his his kip, he just got up, turned metal, yeah. flew into the sky. Well, do, you know, don't you want to have a Pacific Rim Godzilla spin-off where he meets uh, some of the lovely Jaegers? That, that would be nice. This film kind of uh, drove home for me how clever, uh, even if Pacific Rim wasn't for everyone entirely successful, how clever it was in trying to bridge the gap between human characters and these massive monsters so by putting them inside giant robots that were the size of the monsters. It's actually a very clever solution because otherwise there's such a huge disconnect. You don't really feel that they're the cheating. humans are... It, well, it's cheating. It's cheating. It's the same, feel- in the same way that, that, in a way, Jurassic Park cheated by having small things with velociraptors or, more to the point, Godzilla 1998. That's not because there were, there were <laughs> dinosaurs that size. All right, okay. Um, but, all right, Godzilla 1998 having baby Godzillas to be the no, velociraptors. We, we all we all acknowledge yeah. that was that yeah. was truly truly dreadful. But it is difficult to get the humans to influence something of that size. We are utterly insignificant to Godzilla and the, and the Mutos. And in fact, this leads me to one of my pet theories about the film. And this you know time for a big debate, guys. Uh, you could remove every single human character from this movie, and it wouldn't affect the outcome one iota. It wouldn't. But I tell you what, it would change is when he lights the petrol tank. Yes. Yes. It destroys all the children. And I thought, yes. is this going to be one of those films? Where they lay the egg, and one of the legs survives. Uh oh! But it looks like it's not because that's exactly it did... how Godzilla ended the Emmerich one. Was that again like the dog being killed? That another Roland Emmerich V V sign? Yeah, yeah, it may well have been. But yeah, obviously he blows up the things in the movie. You would have to imagine that Godzilla, in his 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 role, official desi- officially designated role as protector of the universe, would go. Ah, well, I've just killed the two adults. You little scrawny gets, you're nothing to me. And he just stomps on them, and the movie's over. But yeah, but whether he could, that. whether he could 
do that because he's so big and you know they're kind of stuck in the middle of that weird, weird cave. Have you ever seen that scene? Where he just starts stomping on Amoeba Records and destroys Pixar in an attempt to. I'm just That's naming things. The I'm just bridge, naming things Chris. I know in San Francisco. Um, you, you know, he just stomps on Pixar to destroy. Is there an Amoeba in San Francisco? Yeah, there is. Yeah, oh, okay. It's really good. You should go there. Okay. Yeah. But I mean, <laughs> I'm not actually sure that's as visually fun as somebody blowing them all sky high. It's oh, like whack a mole. Yeah, I think I think I mean they tried to. It is the, it is the tough the toughest problem I think in a film like this is what do you do with the humans? How do they how can they possibly get involved in the outcome? And I think the whole let's try to blow them up with a nuclear weapon. Uh oh, let's get our nuclear weapon out of the populated area <laughs> is actually not a terrible solution to that problem. Yeah, you know? I thought again it was very logical. I thought it was very clever. I think it, if Godzilla is a representation of nuclear disaster or radiation going horribly wrong it kind of did double work because the monster was there as the result of our ridiculousness. Our weapons that we'd use to destroy these things, when are we ever going to use nuclear weapons? Hopefully never, except when a giant lizard comes along. Well, here's the twist, guys. He eats that shit for breakfast, so just don't even... don't. I re- I thought that was clever. I thought, I thought the radiation absorption mm. was really clever. I thought the reason why they move to get near radiation, I just thought that was really clever, incorporating the power plant in that way. Yeah, and also the reason that uh, humanity wouldn't initially, immediately try really hard to kill them all in that they are being extremely useful in clearing up our nuclear messes, which is the sort of, the two mutos are there for a reason. They are where they are to clean up the radiation and actually perform a service. And so it's not in humanity's interest initially in the film Mm. to actually get rid of them. They're cleaning up Yucca Mountain. They're cleaning up the the disaster at Janjira, um, which is actually a really clever kind of little layer to it. It's not really developed. They caused the disaster at Janjira. Yeah, but he also cleans it up. Yes, because the reason why they didn't want to get rid of him, part of the reason is because he was absorbing all the radiation and that was a good thing. And they were worried that if they did get rid of him, then the radiation would come back. Yeah. As you saw in the Philippines in the cave, they say the radiation levels have actually gone up since he left. It's wow. clever. I actually do think yeah, it's genuinely, I think again, okay. logically very sound. The music was great. I also thought the music was very good and very well delivered in those moments of children being in trouble. <laughs> uh, I, I really The bit where the small uh, the Japanese child falls off that half-broken train and is falling and then gets grabbed. Mm. Like, yep. Okay. Oh, and the uh, yeah, I loved the title sequence as well. It was oh, really, really the title sequence was fantastic. Very good. And, very good. Um, and, you know, the effects. The effects are astonishing in this. Um yeah, the atomic breath. I mean, the atomic breath is good. Godzilla himself. We haven't really talked about Godzilla. Uh, Dan, yes, you were on set. Yes, of this movie. Yes, I was. Did you get to meet Godzilla? How yeah? How big was he in real life? Uh, well, if you read my piece, Chris, you'll know that he never came out of his trailer. He refused to talk to the press. He was a bit, to be honest, he was a bit of a dick. Is what it- about the Mutos? Uh, the Mutos weren't there no they weren't uh, well actually seriously towards the end we're in San Francisco if you've read the piece you know this I was on that street they halo jump in and you see the kind of the pagoda thingy the lantern shake it's the entrance down to the to the where all the eggs are and everything so I was on that street and the scene where uh, Aaron Taylor Johnson's going up the street and then it's like I watched it being directed where, where basically Gareth had did the roar of Godzilla? He had it on his iPad and he played it through a loudspeaker, and he was he was shouting through a megaphone basically, Godzilla over there. That they looked up there and Muto over there. So I was there. So kind of I was on set at the same time as Godzilla and the big mummy Muto. But then Gareth basically said, "You, you really want to see what's happening, don't you?" I said, "Yeah, it'd be nice." 
And so he gave me his iPad, which had the previs, which is the kind of the basic, you know, grey blocky versions. It was the previs of the entire end battle. And I sat there for 20 minutes watching the end of the film pretty much on previs. So up to where? Up to I actually had to stop because I thought I don't want to spoil the end of the film for myself. So it was up to it was a good 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 bit of the fight uh, with him against the two mutos, and then I kind of stopped it because okay. I didn't want to go. I didn't want to go further, but I knew about the eggs and all that stuff. Down so you there. got a sense of uh, what he looked like and how he moved and how he behaved. Yeah, and I really liked it. I really liked the fact that they went big and they went chunky. They went uh, upright because obviously. When Godzilla was first designed, it was when they still thought that dinosaurs walked very upright, dragging their tails along the ground. And, you know, Godzilla is loosely based on like a sort of, you know, T-Rex, Iguanodon kind of thing with Stegosaurus bits on him. He's a sort of dinosaur cocktail. Obviously, when when Emmerich and uh, Patrick Totopoulos did their version in 98... They followed the new logic of of how we know dinosaurs look, which is they crouch forward and the tails are, you know, up in the air, kind of like balancing the weight of the body in the front, which worked wonderfully for new look T-Rexes and Velociraptors and so forth. But it just didn't quite work for Godzilla. It didn't feel right. And well, I, need a bigger tail to balance the chin. Well, exactly. <laughs> yeah, that, kind of, that whole kind of jutting chin thing, which was, you know, big chins were big in the 90s, weren't they? Jimmy Hill. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah let's just it. get out of there. Okay. okay, so yeah, they basically, yeah, he was, he was a cross between Jimmy Hill and a velociraptor. But now... Jimmy Hiller. Yes. Thank you, Chris. Thank you. But now, yeah, so they've gone back to this kind of retrograde kind of, you know, very upright thing, dragging its tail along the ground. But I loved that. And I loved that he, he was kind of... Big bear-like and bulky, a little bit like you know one of the big men wrestlers, you know, Big Daddy, Giant Haystacks, those kind of guys. <laughs> and it was Amazing. just like you know, you just there was power and the solidity, and you want to see him beating the crap out of some spindly, long-legged mutant thing. Uh, the design of those as well, they reminded me of. Uh, they remind me of some computer games actually, but the way they communicated almost through these heat waves that came through their heads like mm. they kind of beamed at each other I, I kind of thought that was quite cute I thought there was a vulnerability for the female Muto who has this ginormous egg sac between her many legs just a well aimed tail swipe would leave her oofing but she dropped the egg sac by the time Godzilla fought her you've still got like a well yeah. she might have been a bit tender there yeah you've got your nethers yeah Maybe. everybody has their nethers mm. presumably including Godzilla we don't really know I liked him. I liked. I liked the design. I thought the face. I mean, the the. I think it was your article was talking about. You know, a little bit of bear, a little bit of eagle. Yeah. A little bit of. Uh, I read somewhere else a skelky from uh, the dark crystal around the eyes. Um, but you could kind of. There were all these little tiny bits in it, but it, it added up to something that felt rather Godzilla-like, which I thought was good. I had them as like ticks crossed with gorillas, because they had oh, that the kind of, Yeah, they had the kind of a hooked fingers which kind of reminded me of like you know ticks and the way they walk they're quite small and compact and then they f- the, the wings were great and that bit where the uh, the male muto darts into the water pounds that battleship is that right yeah mm. that's a really great that's a really great moment too yeah i just mm. i thought this and the, the six legs just like mm. tickling along tick, and head, uh, heads like staple removers yes that's fair <laughs> yeah they were a bit um a little bit cloverfield reminiscent for me i think possibly i just they weren't pretty monsters and I think I prefer my monsters to be a little bit more visually appealing somehow so I'm not shallow. quite sure what I yeah clearly I'm not quite sure what I quite mean by pretty in this case you, but I don't you know you toothless from How to Train a Dragon oh he's so cute you want monsters you could you could 
see yourself settling down with. <laughs> No, I don't know. I just, I just want monsters that are just slightly less grotesque. And I get that they're meant to be bad guys, but I would like a really beautiful bad guy. I think Mothra, in, in some ways, kind of worked because of that. Because Mothra is really you dangerous. Mothra? <laughs> just saying, honestly. But Mothra's really dangerous, but also quite pretty. And I think that's an interesting kind of contrast. And I think that's why God's one of the reasons that Godzilla is interesting because well, he's, you know, get cool a looking, room. but. <laughs> A Dangerous. large room. <laughs> a very large room. Get a desert. God, Mothra's a girl, you guys. Jeez. I'm not judging. Well, there's nothing wrong with that. This podcast has taken an unexpected turn. I'll be honest. I thought Godzilla was fantastic. Uh, I'm not as, as well-versed in the in the lore as you guys are. Uh, so I'm coming to this, with, I think, with Joe Punter uh, head on. He worked for me. He worked for me as a design. Some people have called him fat. That's offensive. How would you imagine? Fat he's, shaming. Yeah. Oh. He's yeah, big boned. Yeah. He's, he's not even Literally. big boned. He's to be just, fair... Us, as, as a world, we are his feeder. Think about radiation and stuff. We are his feeder. Think about it. Wow, it's so deep, man. Think about it. The reason why he's fat is because of us. Yeah, man. Think about it some more. Because we're throwing away can all we stop the thinking about it yet? old fast food. You can now stop thinking about it. Here's my question. How was that boat ever going to get 20 miles out to sea by the time the bomb went off? It wasn't. Okay. But it was a desperate uh, suicidal run by uh, Ford Brody. But it didn't get 20 miles out to sea by the looks of things. So, how badly were people irradiated? Oh, dead. Oh. Dead. Uh, also, you have to imagine that it's not only San Francisco in ruins, mm. right, but you have two, I'm presuming, highly radioactive 300-foot corpses uh, knocking around. <laughs> they, honestly, no one's going to be living in San Francisco for years. They'd probably airlift <laughs> those to Yucca Mountain. To wrap things up, I mean, it, it's, it's a fine film. You know, we gave it three stars, which is a recommendation. Yes. I think some like it more than others. Yes. Uh, do we want to see more? Do we want to see a God sequel? Do we want yes. to see Godzuki at long no. last? No, I don't want to see Godzuki because I hate Godzuki. Godzuki's a I joke. But uh, there wasn't, you know, there wasn't a sting. Well, I didn't miss a sting, did I? There was no sting. So there was no Godzuki sting, right? But yeah, I, well, obviously there's good scope for sequels. I mean, is how there? many Godzilla films have there been? There is an answer know. to that question. I can't remember it off the top of my head, but I'm saying off the top of my head about 23. About 30. Ah, well, there you go. It was in my feature. I've already forgotten it. But... <laughs> <laughs> but is there scope? Is there really scope? Yeah. I mean, because yeah. what could the plot be? Oh, here's another giant monster. Here comes Godzilla again. Oh, let's do a dance. And then... Okay. All right. He, he kills a giant monster and we all go home. Okay. I, I, this is just off the top of my head. Okay. Uh, and obviously, if, if, anyone's, if anyone's listening, Gareth, if you're listening, Warner Brothers, Legendary, you know, call me. What about Monsters on the Moon? Godzilla, Dark of the Moon. Don't do that to me. Just don't, really don't do that. That film ruined the moon for me. <laughs> of course, also, the series has already seen uh, Space Godzilla play a role. So I feel like we might be retreading all the ground there with, with a moon. It's a tribute. Monster. Right. The Lunasaur. Yeah. I also feel like we are in danger of, as Ali so rightly pointed out, referencing Transformers Dark of the Moon which I don't think anyone here ever ever wants to do that never happened that film what never happened exactly precisely uh, that is all the time we have I think that's I'm not even sure if that's the right note to end on but it's a note and we'll take what we can get uh, that's it for a Godzilla spoiler special thank you to Helen thank you Ali thank you Danzilla and Godzuki <laughs> uh, I would love to see that Press a button. You know, if he comes from the depths. 
That'd be fun. That'd be good. Yeah, it could have been Brian Cranston and Aaron Taylor Johnson going around on that on a boat, you know, with Juliette Binoche, <laughs> um, be great, yeah. pressing their button and Godzilla coming to help. That'd be awesome. And Sally Hawkins and and uh, Ken Watanabe could have been on the boat as well as their chums. Yeah. That's they could have, they could have taken it there. They could have taken it. They, they should have. It, no, yeah. they could have. Maybe we'll meet Mrs. Godzilla in the next one. Oh, that'd be nice. That'd be lovely. All right, if you're listening, <laughs> I don't think anyone is anymore. But anyway, if our next spoiler special will be for X-Men Days of Future Past and producer-writer Simon Kimberg uh, will be there to spill the beans. That is a doozy. Do not miss it. Uh, and that'll be out on the 26th of May. That's Monday, the 26th of May. And it's goodbye from me. Uh, thanks for listening. See you, bye. Bye. <laughs>